I feel like the singer from the 70s who said, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. <laughs> this is a massive story in the history of God's people. It's a story that not only shapes the Old Testament, but it shapes in many ways the New Testament as well. It's a story that reframes the life of God's people. And it's a story that reframes our life as well. I want us to see the story in its context in the Old Testament, but along the way, I want to show you the Lord Jesus Christ who is hiding in this story in plain sight. And as always, we will make our way to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But in order to get there, let's begin where the story does in Egypt. To provide some context and bring you up to speed, keep in mind that where we are so far is that we have seen God raise up a savior named Joseph, lifted him up out of a pit to deliver Egypt and become the savior of the world. Sometime after Joseph died, a Pharaoh came along in Egypt that did not know Joseph, did not pay attention to the history of Egypt, did not care about what God's people in Egypt had done to save Egypt. Jesus said salvation comes from the Jews, and it's no less true for Egypt as it is for us. It's absolutely true. Only the Pharaoh in Egypt did not care about that story. So he began to mistreat and abuse and eventually even slaughter infants in Egypt that came from the Israelites. He began to mistreat and abuse the Hebrew people. And God, who had made a promise to love and care for his people, drew near to keep his promise. And he raised up another savior named Moses. Only this one was drawn out of the water and raised up in Pharaoh's house. Eventually, God sends this savior to Egypt to deliver his people Israel out of Egypt, but also to destroy Egypt. He is not going to be the savior of the world. He's going to be the savior of God's people. So when Moses goes back to Egypt and speaks to Pharaoh, he goes with God's message in his mouth and says to Pharaoh, the Lord God, Yahweh, the God of Israel says, let my people go that they may worship and serve me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's response to that was, who who is this Lord God of Israel? I don't know this Yahweh of which you speak. And over the course of about 40 days or more, he learns the hard way just who this God is. Yahweh draws near to introduce himself to Pharaoh. And he does so by executing judgments on the gods of Egypt. And in every plague that God unleashes against Egypt, he says that he is making his name known. He wants his name to be great among Egypt and beyond. He wants the glory of his name to be revealed. And so God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the creator of the world, gathers together, marshals the armies of creation and turns them against Egypt. Now, this might seem to be arbitrary on God's part, that he's just doing some random acts of judgment. 
But what God is actually doing is he is taking the gods of Egypt, the gods that were worshipped as creation, the creatures and the things in the world that had been turned into gods in Egypt. God is setting creation free and unleashing creation against Egypt. And he begins by using the lowly things and moves up to the higher things. And so layer after layer, floor after floor, God is leveling, dismantling, decreating the house of Egypt. And he's doing so by using his creation against them to show them that they ought to have been worshiping the creator and not the created things. And along the way, God is unveiling his name and making it known. I am who I am. My name will be great. My name will be known. And Pharaoh learns the hard way that when you ask, who is the Lord, your attitude matters very much. The response you get depends much on your attitude. And so what God does is he exposes the gods of Egypt to public shame and shows that they are no gods at all. They are creatures and created things that are to do the beck and call of the Lord God. But the Lord God saves the most dreadful plague for the last. This plague is the death of the firstborn son from the highest to the lowest among men and animals, among those who are free and those who are slaves or captives. It's the death of the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. And it's stories like this that have caused people throughout generations, and especially in the 21st century, to question the character of the Lord God. You see, what happens is we forget the front part of the story. We forget all of the things that Pharaoh has done to provoke the Lord God. We forget all the things that Pharaoh has done to afflict oppression and pain upon the people of God. We forget that he slaughtered the infants. And so when God says he's going to bring judgment on the firstborn of all of Egypt, what often happens is people began to sympathize with Pharaoh. As if God were mean and cruel and capricious. As God is just acting in some arbitrary way. As if God had no right to respond to what Pharaoh has been doing. People began to feel Sympathy, feel sorry for Pharaoh. They can't believe that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh didn't have a chance, did he? Well, he had many chances, 10 to be exact. But along the way, he hardened his heart and God strengthened his heart to give him the resolve to keep doing what he wanted to do anyway. But let us not forget that what is happening here is not just a contest between God and Pharaoh. God didn't have to allow Pharaoh to live for five minutes, much less 50 years, much less to get away with all of the atrocities he committed. The Lord God has been gracious to him, preserving his life even up to this point. Now I want to give you an analogy that might help you with this, especially if you're wrestling with the fairness and the justice of a story like this. Fathers, I want you to think about your own children. And think about whether there is a father among us or whether you are the father who if you saw your children being mistreated or abused, threatened in any way, would you stand by and let it happen? If you had it within your power to act, would you stand by and say, well, 
I can't do anything about it. That guy is bigger than I am. My son probably deserved it anyway. Or would you take every action, everything you could do to bring relief to your child, rescue them from that danger? That is what the Lord God is doing because God has said that Israel is his son. Israel is the son of God. And God's son has been threatened and abused and mistreated by Pharaoh and by the Egyptians. And so God draws near to execute vengeance upon Egypt because he wants to show his love for his son. This is what the Lord God did for his son, not because... I want to be very clear about this, not because his son Israel was more righteous than Egypt and not because his son was less idolatrous than they were and not even because they were more mistreated than others were. God draws near to exact vengeance on Egypt for the life of his son because he loves his son. And he doesn't love his son because his son is so righteous and saintly. The prophets tell us that Israel, while living in Egypt, were just as idolatrous, were just as sinful as the Egyptians. This is what the Spirit says to the prophet Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt." And then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But, but I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt." The point I want you to see here is that when God drew near to deliver Israel out of Egypt, it was not because Israel was so innocent and sweet and saintly. Israel was just as sinful as the nation of Egypt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that includes us. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. It's what we all deserve for our sin. All deserve to die because of our sin against the Lord God. The Egyptians were no different than the Israelites. The Israelites were not better than Egypt. So what made all the difference in the world between those two nations? 
grace. God had chosen Abraham and his descendants by grace to love and to care for them and to provide for them. And what the story shows us is that the Lord God and his relationship to people, his relationship to individuals and to nations and to communities and to families is that the Lord God reserves the right to show mercy to whom he will show mercy, to show compassion to whom he will show compassion, and to harden whom he will harden. This is what God does in this story. But don't take your eye off the ball. Grace makes all the difference in the world. So again, God's children were not better than other people's children. Just like your children are not necessarily better than anyone else's child. These children were idol-worshiping sinners just like the Egyptians. So why did God spare them? Why did God save them? Well, the quick and easy answer is because they were his children. They were his children. He didn't make excuses for them. He made sacrifices for them to clean up their mess. He obligated himself to love them and to take care of them when he chose them by grace and made a covenant with them. And he's keeping that covenant along the way. We said it once, we'll say it a dozen times more at least, God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And in this story, we see that God is faithful even when his people are not faithful. They refuse to give up their detestable things. They refuse to let go of their idols. Even when they saw the ten plagues unfolding before their eyes, even when they saw the majesty and the power and glory of God's name, they still had a hard time letting go of their sins. But instead of striking them down, God comes alongside his people and he spares them. He provides a way for them to be protected from his wrath and from his anger. And he says to them, take a lamb, each of your families, take a lamb enough to feed all the mouths of the people in your families and sacrifice that lamb and then take some blood, dip a stalk of hyssop in it, in the blood, and then smatter it on the doorframe of your house. And make sure all the members of your family are in that house because on this night, this dreadful night of destruction and death, the angel of doom is going to come through your neighborhoods. And he's going to go door to door through the land of Egypt. And if he sees the blood on the doorframe of the house, he will pass over that house. Not because the members of that house are so righteous, not because they're so good, not because they're better than everyone else, but simply because they trusted God and put the blood of the lamb around the frame of their house. They will be protected by the blood of the lamb. That blood is a sign. It is a sign of God's love for his people. It's a sign that marks a distinction between God's people and those who are not his people. It is a sign for the people and a sign for the Lord. It becomes a sacrament that points to a greater reality. And the reality is that God has promised to care for you and to love you. And he's keeping his promise. Despite the fact that you are still so sinful and rotten. 
That's grace. That's the power of grace. So God kept his promise and saved his people for the sake of his holy name. And how does he do this? Once upon a time, their father Abraham had said, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And so God has instructed his people what to do with this lamb. Each family has a lamb. And what's interesting as you read the story is that there are all of these lambs, as many as there are households of God's people in, in the land of Goshen, in the land of Egypt. And yet God refers to this sacrifice as the, the sacrifice of the one lamb. All of those lambs are pointing to the lamb that God will eventually provide. So when this angel of death comes to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt, when he comes to execute judgment on the sins of the world, everyone who shelters in their house is signed and sealed by the blood of the lamb, and they will be spared and saved. And you notice in reading the story that that includes men, women, and children. This idea that people, that parents will allow their children to make decisions for themselves about their faith and life doesn't fly in this story. Because any Hebrew parent who had said to their child, hey, if you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. We're going to be in the house. Uh, We put the blood on the door and we've roasted the lamb, their bitter herbs and unleavened bread. If you don't want to do this, you do you. We're going to be in here. That child would have died. So the parents are to lead the children to the things of God and lead them to Christ. Lead them into the things of God to say, hey, this is what the Lord requires of us. So we're going to do this. It is a matter of life and of death. And that's what they did. This is why the Christian church has historically insisted that parents present their children for baptism. Get them in the house of God. Get them under the blood of Christ early so that they grow up under the love and care of the Lord God. Don't wait. Don't put it off and leave them outside in the streets where the destroyers are, where the the trouble is. Bring them out of darkness into light. Now let's go back to that dark and dreadful night. What happens is at midnight, after all of this anticipation, after all of this waiting... At midnight, the Lord God comes and strikes down all the firstborn. You jump over one chapter to chapter 13, and it's more explicit. The scriptures say the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And I'm not citing that simply for shock value, although it is shocking. I'm citing it because I want us to see that the Lord God assumes total responsibility for this action. He's not hiding behind mediators. He didn't like blink or, sh- or shrug. He didn't look away for a second and say, oh, what happened? He didn't give someone else or something else permission to do this. He takes full responsibility for this. He alone holds the keys to death and Hades. He alone determines when people live, when they die, how long they live, and how short they live. He has a right to do with his creatures what he wants to do. 
And so he draws near and he strikes down the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And the scriptures say, in what it has to be one of the most haunting verses in the Bible, that there was a great cry in the land of Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Some of you have been in the house of mourning lately. You know the pain and the sorrow associated with that. You know what those cries are like. But in the context of this story, what I want you to see is this cry stands in sharp contrast to the cries that we heard earlier. That the Lord God heard the cry of his people rising up to him. He heard their cry, he saw their affliction, and he came to do something about it. And because he came to do something about it, to put things to right, now there is another cry rising up. And it is heard throughout the land in the darkness of that night. And you hear it everywhere except in the houses of those who took shelter under the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood that shielded them from God's wrath against their sin. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Behold the kindness and the severity of God, that you may both fear him and love him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Lord God is not someone to play around with, to provoke. Behold his severity. But behold his kindness as well. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It is the kindness of the Lord that spares us, gives us time to change. It's the kindness of the Lord that shelters us and shields us under the blood of the Lamb. It's the kindness of the Lord that provides a way of salvation for sinners. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. The wages of sin is death. That's what Egypt worked for. It's what Israel worked for. And were God to pay them what they had worked for, and were God to give them the wages that they were due, the wages they earned, they all would have died. The same is true of you and of me. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God's grace is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have to make up your mind in life. Do you want everything you've worked for? Do you want what's due to you? Do you want God to be completely fair with you and give you what you deserve? He will do that. He will honor that request and pay you your wages, which are death. Or you can say, I don't want what I deserve. I don't want to be paid those wages. Keep the wages. I'd rather have a gift. I'd rather have what I don't deserve, what's not coming to me. Because of my work, I'd rather have something else. God, do you have anything else for me?
besides these wages? Yes. Here's a free gift. Eternal life in Christ. Which do you want? In the middle of this dramatic story, God does something very curious. He interrupts the story to lay down some detailed destruction. To lay, he interrupts the story to lay down some detailed instructions about the Passover liturgy. Seems out of place. Because you're reading about this high drama, you're feeling the tension, the pressure of the story, you're in the midst of darkness, and then God says, now, here's how I want you to celebrate the festival going forward, starting tonight and then going forward. Here's, how, here's what I want you to do. And he gives them detailed instructions about what kind of lamb to get and what to do with that lamb and what to do with the blood of the lamb and where everybody needs to go and what kind of food they need to eat. And at the heart of these instructions, there is a meal. God establishes a meal for his people. He wants his people to keep a festival, to celebrate the feast, to hold this memorial ritual that marks a transition in the life of God's people. So he gives them this sacramental meal as a sign and seal of a new year. This meal reshapes time and space. It reframes their life. This is the beginning of life for them. This is a new birth. New life comes out of the death of a firstborn son. And God wants his people to memorialize that. But when they memorialize it, he's not asking them to lament and grieve the death of the firstborn son. He's asking them to celebrate with joy and peace, to celebrate with giddiness and happiness the fact that a firstborn son has died to bring them life. And so they're to mark this transition in their life, this conversion, if you will, with a meal. Why a meal? In my reading this week, I came across what one theologian points out. He says, meals can transcend time. Taste and smell can take us back to distant times and places. Ritual meals celebrated the same way with the same food and the same drink and the same format can stabilize us and satisfy us in ways that nothing else can. You know that to be true, and I know that to be true. That's why at Thanksgiving, you probably eat the same thing this year that you ate last year. That's why at Christmas, you ate the same thing last year that you're going to eat this year. We have our ritual meals and we do the same thing. There are places we like to go and eat because it keeps us connected to people, whether they're with us or not. This past week, I went to a place in Forney called Crumbs. It's a little bistro where my, my mother and I used to sneak off together and have breakfast. And we would sit at the table and we would eat our jalapeno grits and drink our French roast coffee until we had it up to our eyeballs. And we would talk about life. And we would laugh together. We'd cry. And we'd share stories. And agonize over things happening in our family. And on and on we could go. So I went back this week. And I ordered... Jalapeno grits. 
and French roast coffee. And I had breakfast with my mother. Meals transcend time. They put us back in places that are long gone. They give us a chance to reconnect again. On just about any given Wednesday night, if you're looking for me and Shannon, I'll tell you where we'll be. You're welcome to join us. We'll be at Tino's Restaurant in Sunnyvale. We've been eating with the Martinez family for 30 years off and on. And we go there because it's comfort food. It's the same fajitas, the same enchiladas, the same chips, the same salsa. And it keeps us connected, keeps us going. It's a meal that transcends space and time. How much more the Lord's Supper? When God says, keep the festival, he's not just saying, here's the ritual, check off the boxes and get through it. He's saying, reorient your life around this table, around this supper. Reorient your life around the Eucharist because this is where the center of reality is. I think it's fitting that in the midst of this narrative where the story is interrupted by instructions about the Passover meal. Why? Because this is exactly what God does to us. He interrupts our life. He distracts us. He draws us back to himself. So in the midst of life, while we're going to work and fighting traffic and going to the store and chasing balls at the ballpark and all of those other things we do, suddenly life is disrupted by a call to come and orient our life around the person and work of Christ, to meet him at his table so that he can feed us himself, give us his body and his blood. And it's not so that we can be transported back to the upper room. It's so that we can be transported to the heavens of heavens. That we may feast with Christ and his people. So that we can be lifted up out of the Egypt of our world. Out of the darkness of this place. And brought into the light of heaven. And that is why we are called to keep the festival. Not as a funeral. But as a feast. We're not to come as if it were a funeral dirge, hanging our heads, dragging our feet, shedding our tears and sorrow, but to come with giddiness. That's at the heart of this Hebrew word for keep the festival. Come with giddiness, come with dancing, come with joy, come happily to eat and drink with your Passover lamb. The Passover meal is a sacramental meal. It culminates in the Lord's Supper. It culminates in the Eucharist, the giving of thanks. So for generations, the people of God from Israel, from Egypt forward, kept the Passover meal. But when Jesus Christ came into the world, a prophet stood up and said to all of the world, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that Lamb of God sent his disciples out to find a place 
a guest room and an upper room of a guest house to prepare the Passover feast. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus wanted to eat this Passover feast with them. And so they went and prepared the place as he said. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table with his apostles and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took the cup and when he gave thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. He took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, all of those lambs slaughtered through all the generations have been pointing to this one lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Paschal Lamb of all Paschal Lambs is instituting the Lord's Supper. He is the one breaking the bread and distributing the wine. He is the one saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood, take all that I have for you. Receive it all as a gift of grace. It's often said at funerals, at Christian funerals, in the midst of life we are in death. And there is so much truth in that. But when we come to this table, what we ought to be saying is that in the midst of death, we are in life. In the midst of death, we are in life. That's what our father said in Egypt. That's what Christ was saying in the upper room. And that's what we've been trying to say every week when we come to this table. This is life. And that's why it can't be a funeral. It has to be a festival. Because we're coming to eat and drink with the Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, who was sacrificed for us to shield us from God's wrath, to shelter us in God's love. Our Passover lamb who laid down his life for the sins of the world. When your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? It's your moment to catechize them. I know some of you parents wonder, when can my kids partake of the Lord's Supper? How long do they have to wait? And we would say, not too long. When they start asking you what it means and what this is about, it's a great time for you to give the answer and then bring them to your pastors so we can welcome them at the table. What is the answer you give? Well, in Egypt, the people of God said, It's the sacrifice of the Passover for the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. That would be a good answer to give your kids when they say, What is this about? But if you want to fine-tune it in light of who Christ is, you might say this, It is the sacrifice of the Passover for the Lord. For we were slaves of sin and death in the world, but God came and destroyed our enemies and he set us free by the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what it means. And this is why we come and partake of this meal. And what are we celebrating at this supper? We are celebrating the death of a firstborn, not the death of the firstborn in Egypt, 
but the death of the firstborn Son of God, the one and only begotten Son of God. It is through the death of the firstborn that we have been brought to life. Let us reflect on these things as we prepare our hearts to draw near to receive the body and blood of our Paschal Lamb at this table. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.